Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and welcome to the eighth series of my weekly podcast. We have a new theme composed and performed by my good friend Tevin Thomas. He also did yesterday's the theme that we've been using for the past several series. Tevin also composed and performed the music for my talk show when we were live at Harlem's world-famous Apollo Theater. He was gifted back then, and he's still gifted now. Thanks, Tevin, for this tune, Devonir. In this episode, some interesting twofers. Will Donald Trump get indicted this week? He seems to think so, and has called on supporters to protest. And, as that unfolds, his Proud Boys supporters are turning their trials into shambolic spectacles. Top it off with reports that Trump tried in a second phone call to get the results of the Georgia vote overturned in 2020, and you have a trifecta of rough road ahead for the former president. What exactly is going on with banks? Two in the U.S. fail, while Credit Suisse, one of Switzerland's biggest banks, gets bought out by a rival. Are we seeing a repeat of 2008? Two tales of abortion rights. The North Dakota Supreme Court blocks a plan in that state, while Wyoming, a couple of states over, bans the medication abortion pill, or at least is trying to. Let's get into it. First, sad to say, Donald Trump. He posts on Truth Social that he expects to be indicted this week on charges stemming from an alleged $130,000 payment made on his behalf to porn star Stormy Daniels back on the eve of the 2016 presidential election. That payment, allegedly made to keep her quiet, was facilitated by his lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen. Cohen is expected to be the prosecution's star witness should there be a trial. To be fair, Trump has denied having sex with Daniels and has cast the investigation and possible charges as a witch hunt. He's also called for protests should the indictment happen. But of course, Trump responds to each and every probe and question of his actions the same way. Whether it's Georgia, Mar-a-Lago, or even situations where his compatriots have pled guilty, they're all partisan political witch hunts. However, this one would mark an extraordinary epoch in American political history. It would be the first time a former president was indicted on criminal charges. The charges, should they happen, would be brought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. It's significant that both the Federal Election Commission and federal prosecutors in New York looked at this episode and did not bring charges against Trump. Moreover, it provides a side benefit to him in that it gives him a chance to rally his base, hence the uh, exhortation to protest. Now he's even pressing his rival for the 2024 presidential nomination, Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, to speak up on his behalf. He's already suborned House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to do so. If only sex with a porn star was Trump's only worry. Now comes word through the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he placed a second call seeking to overturn Georgia's election results. This time, a special grand jury heard audio of a call, ultimately unsuccessful, to then-Georgia House Speaker David Ralston. The ask 
was to call a special session of the legislature to overturn the results that favored Joe Biden. Trump got nowhere with Ralston, who has since passed away. The recordings, of course, are in the hands of Fannie Willis, Fulton County DA. If I were him, I'd be very, very nervous about that. Trump may have a lot more to fear from that probe, which is investigating whether he broke Georgia law. There's also the classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. That's an issue as well, but it may not have as much resonance now that Joe Biden has been found to have kept some classified documents in his house. No matter. For Trump, bad road is bad road. And while we're at it, how about those Proud Boys? Five of their leadership are on trial on federal seditious conspiracy charges. Did you forget about that? I know I sure did. The trial has lasted three months thus far, and attorneys for the quintet have used every method at their disposal to disrupt, delay, and shift the focus from the January 6th insurrection to, believe it or not, different brands, that is, of cereal. More on that in a minute. If you take the macro view of this trial, you might conclude it seems like the same tactics used by Wisconsin parade, Christmas parade, that is, murderer Darrell Brooks. You may remember it didn't work so well for him. Constant objections, references to his constitutional rights, subject matter jurisdiction, and in the end, triple-digit life sentences to be served consecutively. As for the Proud Boys, they appear to be playing as much for the larger public than the people in the courtroom. How do I know this? Because apparently one of the lawyers for these guys started his opening statements by thanking the audience, which didn't make the judge too pleased. Examples, you say? Here's another one. One defense attorney asked for a delay so she could read a book mentioned in the evidence. Mentioned in the evidence. But seriously, folks, their defense is that any mention of war or revolution was just a joke, was just said in jest. That the defendants had no idea how January 6, 2021 would actually play out. If you think that's absurd, when an FBI agent mentioned initiation rights for the Proud Boys, that included engaging in a major conflict for the cause, a defense attorney wanted to talk about another right involving naming five serials while getting punched. Five serials while getting punched. Some lawyers for the defendants have been trying to blame police for the violence that took place on January 6th. Anybody but them. That was part of that anybody but me defense that didn't work in the Daryl Brooks trial. But then he was representing himself. These guys all have lawyers. This case is now going on for better than 10 weeks. Some lawyers have actually tried to get Donald Trump to testify, so far without success. You might remember that he promised to pardon these people if he becomes president again. That's a perfect reason to see to it he doesn't get another chance to ruin the nation. Up next, what's the deal with the banks? Are we facing the possibility of 2008 all over again? This is The Intersection. 
It's springtime and you're listening to Mark Riley, the intersection of politics and culture. Welcome back to The Intersection. Here in the U.S., it's been Silicon Valley and signature banks that needed mouth-to-mouth. In Europe, Credit Suisse was bailed out by its rival, UBS. So what gives? President Joe Biden says this will not be a repeat of 2008, when the nation spent a boatload of money bailing out big banks. Even though bankers were calmed a bit by the UPS takeover to the tune of $3 billion, financial markets still have a collective case of the yips. After all, the two U.S. banks are medium-sized institutions. Silicon Valley is important largely because they service the tech sector. Yet its collapse was enough to frighten the folks at Credit Suisse, which was already on shaky ground. One wonders if all this turmoil is a result of greed, stupidity, mismanagement, or a combination of all three. One thing is for sure. Some of the big tech titans who have been chafing at, quote, money printing coming out of Washington are now singing a very different tune. Now they're calling on swift government action to prevent a deepening crisis. Some of these people seem to live in an alternate universe. Not every American, folks, looks with fondness at their local banker. Or certainly, if they like their local banker, they may not care that much for the big banks that many feel run the country. Now, a little history as to why. Back in 2010, on the heels of an extraordinary financial crisis, then-President Barack Obama signed into law the Dodd-Frank Act. It was intended to regulate banks and minimize the possibility of another 2008. Bit by bit, thanks to lobbying by captains of industry like Silicon Valley's Greg Becker, those regulations were loosened. Specifically, that culminated in 2018, where there was a deregulation law signed by, guess who, Donald Trump. By the way, in the wake of Silicon Valley's collapse, that same Greg Becker, the guy who was talking about, uh, what was it, money uh, being printed in Washington, that same Greg Becker was summarily fired last week. Hats off to Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who essentially said, if you want federal help, you're going to have to accept a level of federal regulation. In other words, back to the future, with a return to Dodd-Frank scrutiny, stress testing, and regulation. Is leaving it to the banks to regulate themselves a suitable answer? I don't think so. And finally, a pair of abortion decisions show what can happen when a woman's right to choose is left to the states. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. It's just over 600 miles as the crow flies from North Dakota to Wyoming. It might as well be light years when it comes to abortion. 
North Dakota's Supreme Court upheld a lower court decision to block a ban on abortions in the state. The court ruled the state's constitution protects abortion rights in some, but not in all situations. While the case proceeds in a lower court, abortions in North Dakota remain legal until almost 22 weeks after a woman's last period. Even though the court's decision isn't the last word on the matter, it's an interesting step in a state that wants to ban abortion in all but the narrowest of circumstances. Yet the state's high court preferred a liberal interpretation of the state constitution, leaving it up to the legislature to checkmate them if they can. Go 600 miles west, there's a different set of circumstances. As I've said in past episodes, the anti-abortion movement will stop at nothing in their effort to control a woman's right to choose. Wyoming last week became the first state in the nation to ban the use of pills for abortion. The state is trying to stop the method used by a majority of women to terminate a pregnancy. Other states have included medication abortions in their overall bans, but Wyoming has gone further, banning the pills before a statewide ban has in fact been enacted. My question is as follows. Does a state have the right to inspect packages sent through the federal mails? Because it dawns on me the only way they're going to be able to stop medication abortion pills from being shipped either through the mails or through courier services, etc., is to actually go through the intrusive method of inspecting all these things. How would they know what packages contain medication abortion pills without an inspection? I do not know. And here's the kicker. Like North Dakota, Wyoming has a guarantee of freedom in healthcare decisions. They're trying to get around this by declaring abortion is not healthcare. So what exactly is it? Keep in mind the entire state only has one provider, one provider, and it only provides medication abortion, not surgical. That clinic argues the state is infringing on its constitutional rights. I would agree wholeheartedly. So let's get this straight. Americans have certain freedoms granted by their individual states' constitutions, but state legislatures can abrogate those rights at will and without the advice and consent of a majority of its citizens. That's what they're saying. And by the way, the governor of Wyoming said he prayed before he decided he signed one bill into law, the medication abortion bill, but he did not sign the total ban which means it will become law if he doesn't put his signature on it, which is interesting in and of itself. But to me, when he said he prayed, that jumped out at me like crazy because that says to me we are talking about the separation of church and state. People aren't supposed, but politicians, I don't believe, are supposed to say, I prayed before I signed a bill into law especially a bill that is so extraordinarily restrictive on the rights of a woman. See, because women make the point, and I'm not sure they're wrong, that if men had babies, abortion would be as free and easy as getting a gun license, as a matter of fact. 
So to sum up, let's look at what's going on here. A former president could soon be indicted on charges he paid hush money to cover an affair with a porn star. A group of his own supporters are trying to use every cheap trick in the book to derail a trial that, if they're found guilty, could put them away for a long, long time. And the former president has promised to pardon them for trying to uh, subvert, that is, democracy. Two banks collapse, and the answer to averting a larger crisis is not tougher regulation, but a government bailout. And finally, a state tries to upend its own constitution by defining a health care procedure as not health care. What a world we're living in. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.